Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Sahil Jaggi. Sahil is a Toronto-based realtor, homeowner, real estate investor, and landlord. Sahil shared his story with Toronto Life Magazine, and it went viral. At 32 years old, he owns 10 homes in Toronto, and he did it without any direct help from his parents. When he was younger, Sahil left his home country of India to pursue his dream of being an investment banker, but when he got there, he realized it wasn't for him. That's when he discovered his true calling in life was real estate. In my interview with Sahil, we discuss his journey to becoming a homeowner, how to pay off student debt and save up a down payment, and how to attract the perfect tenant. Without further ado, here's my interview with Sahil Jaggi. Hi, Sahil. How are you doing today? Hey, Sean. Nice talking to you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being on the show. Really looking forward to sharing your inspirational story with our listeners. Yeah, no, me too. I'd love to reach out to as many people as possible. And it's been a great opportunity to be featured in this article because I've had an overwhelming amount of people reach out and, you know, uh, saying that, you know, this is a source of inspiration and it really gives you the kind of reinforcement that, you know, you've been, you must have been doing something right that I'm here today. So thanks for having me and thanks for reaching out. Great. So as I mentioned, you have quite an interesting story. Can you tell us about your journey to becoming a homeowner? I came from India here in 2003, and the goal was to go to a university here because, you know, back home, a lot of people want to move to North America. It's better standard of living and um, better higher education and whatnot. So at the time, we were looking at different places in the U.S. and U.K., and the tuitions for my parents were a little bit too expensive to carry me for the first year. And the idea was to, like, you know, where can we go for higher education where it's also not too expensive? And Canada popped up. Tuition was a lot cheaper. The currency was a lot less expensive. And, you know, I, I ended up coming here and the dream was to get into finance and from there try to get into the finance industry and invest in banking. Back in 2003, this is much before the crisis happened. You know, the whole notion of being an investment banker was like, you know, one of the most glamorous things. And I always had dreamt of going to North America and becoming an investment banker. So I started out in high school for eight months. I was living with a distant family member who took me in as a paying guest. And then from there, I went to Laurier yes. and I did got into the economics and finance program. Shortly after the graduation, when, you know, I finished my degree, I was very excited about getting interviews and meeting a lot of banks and trying to get interviews. But to my surprise, like, you know, my interview with CIBC World Markets that I happened in downtown Toronto was a fantastic interview. But for some reason, I didn't end up getting that job. And it was a little disappointing to me because I really, really wanted to work there. And, you know, um, out of just curiosity, I followed up with the person taking the interview and I right off the bat told them, you know, what, what exactly had went wrong. And I really wanted to work with CIBC. I thought it was a fantastic interview. And he said, look, we liked you, but it seems like, you know, we were overloaded with resumes and yours just fell a couple of points short. So I said, what, 
I know CIBC has banks all over the place. I'm happy to relocate. Where can I do? Where can I go meet somebody for an interview? And he told me that he knew a colleague that worked in New York. So I ended up going for an interview in New York. And funny story is that he actually didn't know I was from Toronto for the interview. So <laughs> when I actually went for the interview, he's like, you know, where do you live? I said, Toronto. And he didn't, he did, he, what he realized at the interview was that I had flown from Toronto just for the interview. And I think we just clicked. And I ended up getting a job at CIBC World Markets in the New York division on Wall Street, which is, you know, so much better than for a guy who's just out of university to get a job there. It was a dream job. I absolutely was ecstatic. That sounds amazing. Um, it was amazing until I got the job because, you know, I realized that this was definitely not my calling. I, As glamorous as Wall Street seems, I, I felt like I was just getting, I was stuck behind a desk and it was like a seven in the morning to nine in the night gig. I was working hard. I was working long hours. I was living in a very, you know, Manhattan's got extremely expensive rent. And for a person coming out of university with a student debt, it's not easy to like live in Manhattan, even though I was doing well. Within the first six months, I started realizing this was not something I wanted to do. And I started missing my friends in Toronto that I went to school with and the life there. And the, the challenge was that I would invested five, six years of my life with student debt to want what I got. And when I did get it, it something that I didn't, didn't, I wasn't interested in. Long story short, fast forward another year and a half, 2009 end, I decided to just get up, leave, come back. And the idea was to get a job somewhere in sales where I don't have to sit behind a behind a desk. And I really pursued that. And I ended up getting a job with Nestle Canada in North York in the Young and Shepherd. That was my territory. And I was covering a lot of convenience stores, a lot of you know gas stations and stuff like that. And even though I took a big salary hit and everybody's like, you're absolutely crazy. Who leaves a job like investment banking? And you came back and now you're basically selling chocolate contracts for Nestle. <laughs> it was a big step down. But to me, I was a lot more happier doing that. And you know, I was always the believer of the fact that, you know, I, I have to do something that I see myself doing in the long run. And the fact that, you know, suiting up, going to work every day and sitting behind a desk was just something just didn't sit well with me. So I ended up getting a job with Nestle. And of course, as a sales rep who's covering a territory, you get a free car from them. And that's where I really started living in the area. I was living in a basement there as well. I was renting. I had saved up some money when I was living in New York. A lot of people in the articles from the comments had mentioned that, how did you end up saving Sixty to eighty thousand dollars in a year and a half. The way I spent it is because, first of all, when you're working there in the first two years, you had no life. I was working fourteen hours a day. Jobs were a little bit better paying well before the crisis. You know, investment banking divisions are making amazing money, and CIBC was doing really well. So my starting position was paying me well, and I was sharing a room with four people. So I basically saved a lot of money that I brought to Toronto, and that's when the journey started. Where I was like, okay, you know what, like. I'm well settled. I know I want to be in Toronto. Real estate's always been of interest to me, back of the hand. So I started looking into getting into home ownership and started looking into buying my first property. So that's where I can continue with how as to where I went from there. But how I got in was that was what led me to having that savings and be like, all right, that's, it's time to get my first property. I was 23, and I, it was about 2010. Well, wow, that's uh, quite a story. Thanks for sharing that with me. And yeah, it's talking about your first property. My understanding is that you lived in the basement of your first home and rented out the upstairs, <laughs> similar to myself. So uh, how did you, first of all, come up with that idea? And how did it help you get ahead financially in the long run? Sure. Right from there, when I started looking in, a lot of people in real estate who don't know about real estate are for some reason, drawn towards these pre-construction marketing banners and marketing stuff that's thrown at you. So 
I started there. I went into presentation centers. I must have researched. And that's how my personality is. If I'm starting to take up a task, I want to like get really into it. And started going to these presentation centers and started looking at condos. And I realized that at the time, the gap between the condo and the detached market was actually very small, right? In 2010, a detached home in Young and Shepherd, I'm talking about a small bungalow, small older bungalow and a very big piece of lot, 50 by 150 lot. We're selling for about $500,000 and a two bedroom condo was selling for about 420 or even like, you know, around the 400, 420 mark. And to me, that was a light bulb right there. It's like, you know, what, if I can own free whole land, you know, around the same, not that much difference of a price range, then obviously to me, like that seemed like a better investment. And then that looked like it was definitely a bit undervalued and had room to grow. Behind the scenes, there were hundreds of reports that I had read. I used to stay up at night just reading and really educating myself about real estate. And that's another surprising thing in our education system. I feel there's not enough for people to learn the realistic ways of real estate until you really get into it. That's why there's a lot of misconceptions and stuff like that. So I ended up deciding to buy the, the bungalow with my with my uncle. And because I was 100000 short of what I was qualified to buy, I thought, okay, I'll get a partner. Uh, I'll go live in the basement. And with the amount of rent that I will get from renting upstairs, I'll practically be living for free. That's how I bought the first house. It was $515,000. I moved into the basement. It was a one bedroom, horrible looking basement. But, mm-hmm. you know, I was a single guy. I was young. I was ready to make the compromises. And the, uh, on the other side, I was, you know, I knew for a fact it was a lot better investment to buy, buy land than to invest my money in bit overpriced condos at the time. So that was my first purchase. And then uh, we fixed up the upstairs a bit. And I think I was just paying two or $300 just to cover the, the gap between the mortgage and the rent from upstairs. And that was my first purchase in 2010. Great. So you alluded to it earlier that you graduated with a lot of student debt. And mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned that you were able to pay it off by living with several people. But could you tell us a bit more about how you managed to pay it off and how you save your down payment as well? And perhaps some of the struggles that you see millennials going through these days and how they can help overcome those struggles. Sure, absolutely. And the idea of coming into a country and getting student loans that are nil or low interest rate is, is a great way for people to get their higher education. That's fantastic. But I think the planning has to come from millennials a lot earlier. The issue happens when people get into their student debt and they walk out with, you know, dollars $30,000 of student debt and they feel a lot of pressure and they feel kind of trapped to obviously pay that debt off. And the natural way to do that is to get into the field that you did your education in. And that, is, that to me is crazy because a lot of people, by the time you're hit, when you're 18, you're, you're asked to choose a career path. By the time you're 21, 22, and you graduate with a student debt, now you're asked to pursue that field. You know, a lot of people grow out of it. By the time you're 18 to 20 to 21, you know, uh, you graduate with a degree that you don't want, not really interested in, but are forced to work in that industry. So to me, student debt, by the time it was second or third year, I've always come from the background where you have to pay your loans. And I don't know if it's an immigrant thing or what it is, but we've always been very conscious about the fact that loans are bad and equity is good. So I always had jobs while I was in school. So by the time I even graduated, I think one third of my loan was paid off because I used to work nights and I used to go to school in the day. So I was taking up jobs in malls. I was taking up jobs in cold calling on behalf of the alumni of Laurier. I was doing TA positions. So I tried to lower that debt. And like I said, in New York, back in 2003, before the housing crisis, investment banking analyst jobs were also really well paid. And the fact that I was sharing the room in Manhattan and I was living in a pretty compromised position and didn't have a life and working 14 hours a day gave me a chance to pay off that debt 
in the first 11 months of my, me working there and also save up a lot of money. So when you're walking out with like about $20,000, $20,000 in debt and, you know, you work for a year and a half and you literally don't spend your money that much, you, you end up saving good money and it gives you a chance to then move forward. Great. Now, fast forward to today. You're 32 yeah. years old. You currently own 10 homes in Toronto and you did it yeah. all without any direct help from your parents. How did you accomplish this impressive feat? And what are some of the sacrifices that you made sure. along the way to get to where you are today? One of the things, obviously, is that my timing was absolutely perfect. You know, in 2010, one of the things that I looked at was that Toronto was getting a lot of traction from all over the world. You know, it was coming out to be one of the best cities in the world to live in. And how I know that is because education is paid for, healthcare is amazing for people, there's political stability in Canada as opposed to a lot of countries in the world. The infrastructure is fantastic, diversity is amazing, immigration is at all time, you know, we're very open and immigration friendly country. And all these factors to me, seem like, you know, a lot of people who are in different countries that don't have that much, Toronto seemed like an amazing place to come and live in. So I saw that and I picked that up a lot earlier. And that's what led me to determine that compared to like other places like New York, you know, LA, or even like Hong Kong or Singapore or all the other places, Toronto was very undervalued. So I think the timing was perfect. The time that I was looking for, started looking into real estate, I think Toronto also at the, and never in my dreams that I think that at 2010 to 2019, prices will go that crazy. But I did think that, you know, based on the condo detached home gap and the fact that Toronto was getting so much traction, it's definitely undervalued overall. So I was very confident in my decision to be pursuing and multiplying my properties as long as I was doing it without overstretching myself. I think timing was a huge factor. I think it really played well with my planning and at least uh, everything that I had planned for. It was beat that by, you know, market was increasing in double digit figures from 2010 to 2016, like 15, 16% increase, but my properties were seeing a 30 to 35% increase. And how I did that was a lot of research, a lot of, even when I didn't have my, I didn't have actually get my license until 2014. Another compromise and sacrifices that you have to make was obviously my first property, I was living in the basement. And then even my second property that I purchased, I was still living in that basement. Third property I purchased, I was living in a den, sharing it with a friend. So we had a one plus den and I chose to live in the den. And my fourth property that we bought, uh, I was still living in the den. So wow. what, the lesson to that is that I'm renting a den, but I own four properties at this point because I never, I kept the two very separate. To me, pulling out equity or doing any of those moves from real estate was always towards putting it back into real estate where I thought growth is inevitable and growth is, and that also a lot of research goes into that, right? My goal was always that, you know, in five to six years, I want to have three to four properties and I want to try and keep my loan to value to about 65%, which to me has always been the golden rule. Today, I own 10 properties, but my loan to value is actually 50%, which means I have a lot more equity that I could draw and I can buy more, but I've always been very careful in whatever I buy and, you know, whatever decisions I make, I always try to see what's the new trends in the market, where the builders are going. And also, I think in real estate, you can get, too comfortable with one neighborhood, you always have to move around. So 2010 to 2012, my investments were made in bungalows that are between 500 and 700,000 in north part of Toronto. And then I realized when it crossed that 700 mark, I realized that it's not, even with putting 20% down, I'm not covering my cash flow, which is a second magic rule, which is for me, like if you're investing in freehold property, you have to have your cash flow at least break even, right? Because it kind of defeats the purpose of owning an investment if you keep feeding it. And by break even, I mean like, you know, give or take 50 bucks up or down, but 
you want to be in that break-even figure. The one thing that really worked out well for me, like I said, was my purchases were always really, really good. And a lot of the times I would even purchase properties that came later in the years after I got my license in 2014, because the, the goal was not to get a license and start selling real estate for people. The goal was that to get your license and door knock to people the houses that I wanted to buy without being questioned as to who the hell you are. So for me, funny enough, the last five properties I purchased have never even been on the market because I narrow the area down and narrow the streets down and narrow the kind of houses that I want to purchase. And then I go door knock and I tell them that I'm a real estate agent and I'm looking to represent a client or, or, or a company that's looking to purchase these houses. And then I try to make those connections directly and I try to buy these properties at a much better rate than the market. And that gives me the first step done right, which is purchase right. My research and everything already is in place in the sense that I have, I'm very bullish towards the area that I'm purchasing in and the houses that I'm buying very careful about checking off all the boxes that such as cash flow 15 to 20 minutes from downtown Toronto. I've never purchased a property outside of Toronto because I always believe that Toronto as a city is always going to be the best. Like, you know, when housing crisis happened in, in states, Manhattan never took a hit in housing prices, right? And that shows that, you know, in the core areas and the core locations, even in bad markets, you're always going to have people and the real estate's always going to remain stronger. Like when the GTA kind of went through a correction itself, Toronto proper stayed strong, but the 905 region exactly. hit pretty hard. So yeah, that's point. Exactly. And I've been screaming that for a while. Like everybody's like, hey, in 2015, they're like, why don't you buy a house in Mississauga or Barrie or Hamilton? Like, well, first of all, like, you know, I, I'd rather pay a little bit more. And if I don't have enough upfront money, I'll introduce your partner and sell that idea of that house to him. So I'm, I'm no opposition in venturing with people. So I can go 50-50, but I would never compromise on my location. That's my absolute like formal rule. Let's say if I had about 60000 saved up and then I, I'd rather buy something with somebody who brings in another 60000 and we combined buy something with $120,000 down payment rather than taking that 60000 and buying a one bedroom and like way away from the core. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's, that, that doesn't resonate. Six out of the 10 houses that I own are owned with partners. Uh, like 50-50, where we both come in with the down payment. I hand explain them the entire model. And they've seen how fast my portfolios have grown over the last five to six years. So I always get opportunity where people are like, you know, we would love to invest with you. And as long as your goals are aligned and you put them down on paper and you explain them how you know everything's going to work, you're always going to find people who are interested in investing in a good idea. Great. So that, that was quite interesting. Thanks for sharing that with our listeners. So buying in Toronto these days is tougher than it used to be even 10 mm. years ago. What advice do you have for younger people trying to get into the real estate market? I think planning is key. Of course, you know, it's a lot different than what it was in 2010 and 2012. But believe it or not, Sean, I still think there are areas in Toronto that are, you know, you still buy a detached home for around 650 to 700. They still follow the same model where it's like 15 to 20 minutes from from Toronto. And I don't expect the person to have 60, 70, 80 or even 100,000 saved up. But there are other things that they can start with. Get your foundations right. So, for example, work towards something that gives you stable income and keep your credit up so that at least two out of the three things that are required for financing you as a broker would know is like, you know, they they look for stable income, have good credit. And then, then comes the question of down payment. If you have your financing and planning done in advance, like I meet a lot of young people who come, they're like 22, 23, some even like 25. And they're like, look, we're looking to buy, but we have 30, $40,000 saved up. I say, okay, you know what? If you have 30 to 40,000 saved up, 
create a financial plan for yourself. So like the next six to eight months, I'm going to save so much money. And if you don't, then find partners, go out to networking events. There's so much appetite for real estate and people in exactly the same position as you and combine and synergize. I've helped people buy one plus dens in which two individuals end up buying the property. They share it together and they don't waste money. So I think as, as we grow as a city and as millennials come in and they find it challenging, I think the concept of partnering with people to buy properties is going to start getting better and better. And like I said, as long as you do it in a way that your interests are aligned and your goals are aligned, it's a fantastic way to synergize. I can give you an example. Like around three years ago, I helped two, uh, two friends buy a property and the, I think it was in Birchcliff and Cliffcrest, Upper Beaches. 2014, they bought a property in Birchcliff for 479000 It was a bungalow. And at the time, they both had about thirty to thirty-five to 40000 saved up. I sat them down together. I drew out a contract for both of them so that they know that in you know, five to six years, they're going to be like, you know, this is the goal of the property. Cost is an 800 mark. We sell, whatnot. They put down about $80,000. They bought the property. They lived in the upstairs. They rented out their basement. So whatever money they had portioned towards rent, they were sharing upstairs and they were renting the basement separately. And in 2018, I just sold it for 850000 to them. And now they're financially wow. free to go and purchase properties on their own because they have enough equity. So if at the starting point, you're having a little challenge to say, okay, $40,000, $50,000 or even $60,000 is not going to help me buy a property, meet with someone because... The first property, why? I mean, as you know, in Canada, on an average, a person moves three to five times in their lifetime, right? They start with a one bedroom, go on to a two bedroom, maybe move to a big house, and then eventually they downsize. Yes. Your first step, which is the challenge, was to get the foothold in the market. I don't think people should shy away from finding people in networking events or friends or family or whatever it is to combine these small amounts into like, you know, a joint ventureship. And obviously work with somebody who really knows that can confidently tell you that, you know, in a good market, you will beat the market and in a bad market, you will not lose money. And when those fundamentals are clear and you work with those people that really are ahead of the market and can find you something between, let's say today for like 650 to 750, there's still fantastic properties out there. But it comes with sacrifice that you're not going to be buying something that is going to be fantastic living. A lot of the millennials today, right away, either going, go towards renting fancy condos or even buying one bedroom condos. Right. And then they're stuck there because you can't expect those properties to grow as fast as like these smaller bungalows and other areas that, you know, the lifestyle doesn't come with a fantastic lifestyle initially. But it's a great way to start and build equity and then work towards that dream house that you want. It just might take a little longer. That's the difference. Well said. So some people say that the real estate market is overvalued. Why do you still see real estate as a good long term investment? Real estate's not just one word, right? As you know, there's four different asset classes. We were talking about condos, townhouses, freehold and condo. We're talking about semi-detached and we're talking about detached. Then we're talking about different neighborhoods, different locations and different demographics that come with it. If you really start breaking things down, I would say there's a lot of places I can pinpoint and tell you that this is overvalued, this is overvalued, this is overvalued. But there are still areas and locations and asset classes. If you really go into the microeconomic way of looking into real estate, I, I feel it depends. I don't think it's everything as a whole is overvalued. I think you can still find properties that are in today's market undervalued. But that's where the research comes in. That's where working with the right professionals come in. That's where the financial planning with people like you come in, where mortgage brokers can help people get to where they want to be and get to have that support system and stuff like that. But to say in one sentence that real estate is overvalued is a very vague, very vague and surprising to me because 
you have to look at it, different asset classes, different locations, different kind like every property is different, right? So it's just some, you just have to be a lot more picky today. That's the difference, right? You have to be a lot more smarter in your purchases and you have to be less rash. That's all. I mean, seven, eight years ago, you could be in an airplane, throw a dart and everything increased. But today you just have to be smarter, pickier and work with the right people that can guide you to buy properties that are undervalued. Not everything to me is overvalued today. I think there are still areas that are massively undervalued in Toronto. You're not just a real estate investor as well as a real estate agent. You're also a landlord. What has the experience been like and any tips for attracting the perfect tenant? (laughs) That's a great question. I mean, you know, behind the scenes as a landlord, first of all, you have to have a very, and this is something I think a lot of people will learn over time. I, when I sit with my clients or when I you, you know, even sit with some investors, the first question I ask them is that how hands-on do you need to be on this property? And the first thing is say, look, I just want something that I get my checks and I'm done. And obviously for that person, you would recommend a better condo versus the other person. Like, look, I, I'm looking for appreciation. I don't mind the hard work. I don't mind putting in the right work. Keep in mind, when I'm buying these older bungalows in fantastic locations, the fact that there are older bungalows, you're attracting a different kind of tenant. My advice is like try to be as hands-on as possible, at least for the first five, six years of your career, or at least the three or four properties that you've at least built up. Don't leave it in the hands of property managers, which is, you know, they don't treat the properties as their own. You're going to end up being cash negative, trying to like, you know, manage a property through a property manager. So try to buy something that is a little bit more at arm's length and try to get into it hands-on, right? Because all you really need is a, is a good handyman, a good good people who are one phone call away to take care of you. And over time, you build those relationships with those people. Like today, I manage 48 tenants, not including the one that I own through my Mink Real Estate Capital Fund, which is a commercial division. But any problems that happen, any issues that happen, I st- they still have my direct cell phone number. I don't have a property manager or you know an, an assistant taking those calls. And when I have those relationships with tenants, you know, they, they see that, you know, he's not the kind of landlord that will just be, and because, because I'm not going to fix these problems. I'm just a channel that they call me. I hear their problems. I call the right people and I connect the right person and I take care of my properties and take care of my tenants. Once you see that kind of happens, the conversations change when you go in a year from today and try to increase those rents because you've built those relationships and everything goes hand in hand. So even though rules don't allow you to increase 1.8%, sometimes you can show them that the cost of interest rates have increased your property taxes have increased and you can sit there and say, look, I've been the kind of landlord that is, you know, take care of anything. I take care of my properties and I will need a little bit more than what's allowed to cover my costs. And at that time, relationships matter. But to expect to be a landlord and have absolutely a, either a property manager manage your properties or not be hands-on, it's just, then it's just not a good investment for you. You're so passionate about real estate that you decided to become involved in the industry yourself. What's it been Mm -hmm. like being a realtor and what do you enjoy most about it? Until 2014, which is four years into me being a real estate investor, I never wanted to be a real estate agent because I I just, I was still working with Nestle full time. But once my portfolio started taking off, which means that if, you know, I bought a house and it was doing a lot better than what the market increases were, because let's say if the the first property I bought, 141 Churchill for $500,000 in 2010, just to tell you without doing much work that I did back in 2010, I sold it for 1.6 million in, in, in 2016, wow. right? So I cleared a million dollars on that property and how, I, and again, that comes to with where to buy, how to buy. So my portfolio was doing a lot better than the market and people saw that. So 
naturally a lot of friends, family, and, you know, people I met at work were like, can you help us do the same thing and this and that? And I'm like, you know what? Relying on realtors has never been good for me. I've never had the experience of having an absolute fantastic real estate agent help me. Like I felt like 80% of the work I was doing with myself. And now that I'm starting to get a lot of people come to me and ask me for help, it was just a natural progression for me. I've always loved sales. I was doing that for Nestle anyway. So it made sense for me to get my license, opened up the MLS thing for me and opened up the fact that I could door knock and also start helping people full time on the side. And to me, like it's, it comes easy in the sense that 90% of the people that I work with in real estate are investors. And when I look at real estate, uh, even for people that I'm helping buy homes, I'm, even though it's going to be a good home for them, but for me, it's always, is it also a very good investment? So I can always give that extra feedback to them on why I think this is also a good investment for them, not just a good home for the family. And most of my pitches are like, they don't see me as a real estate agent. They see me as a person who's actually selling them something that I already purchased. So if I buy a house on the street, I have five, six investors that want to buy the house on the street as well, because they sort of just, it's more like, you know, I put my money where my mouth is when I'm selling them these investments. I never try to sell them something that I wouldn't buy for myself. And that kind of gives me that credibility with investors where they feel like, you know what, he's bought the first property here. He's obviously done a lot better than the market or a lot of other people. And then when I make that kind of sale to them, like, look, I understand what it is to buy a property here because I bought it myself. That automatically gets them that trust that, you know what, he he seems like he's different from other real estate agents. And that's my advice to a lot of realtors out there too. Like, it'd be funny the amount of people I've met in other real estate agents that still don't own a single property and they're just going out there selling these properties. To me, that's insane. Like, how do you know what even the purchase, the feeling of signing a paper feels like? How do you know this is a good investment? But if it's that good, why don't you put your own money in it? In my case, I say I have. And that gives me that edge. I guess it's similar to the analogy, like if you're a personal trainer and you're not in good shape yourself, then (laughs) it doesn't really make sense to be giving advice on good diet and exercise. So I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, like, believe it or not, I've never advertised that much. I have never sent flyers. I've never done any of those marketing things. For me, I love real estate. With or without my license, I'd be purchasing real estate. And I put a lot of time and resources into, like, you know, why, which are narrowing down areas and narrowing down which asset classes. Out of 100 pre-construction, I'll narrow down to two or three that I think are fantastic. And when I carry that information, it's like for my investors and my clients and myself, I feel like, you know, I'm sort of giving them something that I truly believe in. And they feed off of that and they see it and then they do well and they're ready to buy their next property. It gives me an opportunity to work with a lot of people and also do really good work. Great. Well, Sahil, it's been great having you on the show today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, I'm working on a few neighborhoods that I think are going to be really, really good in Toronto. And I understand that a lot of people, affordability is a big reason that today it's tough to buy. And, you know, it's not easy for anybody to go through the stress test and purchase properties. But, you know, reach out to me. I will still direct you to places that are within that 600 to 800 mark where you can still buy a fantastic detached freehold property today. If you're looking for pre-construction, like I said, be extremely careful, especially with the contracts and don't get carried away with the marketing. You're welcome to call me and ask me and I'm happy to direct you to a few, few pre-construction that I think are stand out out of the bunch. The only thing I would say is, you know, it's very important to work with the right people who really, really know what they're doing and their purchases of the product that they're, that they're selling to you. And in my case, I, I usually, like I said, I direct people in avenues and areas where I have 
full faith in and I put my money where my mouth is. So we'll be happy to serve and assist anybody who's looking for real estate in Toronto. Great. And I'll be sure to include your contact information in the show notes. So thanks very much for being on the show. It was uh, wonderful to have you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at Sean, that's S-E-A-N, at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning. <laughs>